0: you're listening to audio from Living Grace Church in Tyler, Texas. To find out more about Living Grace, go to livinggracetexas.org.
1: Well, today I uh, have a special treat for y'all because it's not me preaching. <laughs> it's a friend of mine, um, but more than a friend. Hopefully this is tall enough for you. You know, I don't know, really know. You're, you're a lot taller than I am. But, uh, Uh, This is uh, who's coming to speak today is um, many years ago when I first got into I guess a college ministry is uh, he was um, a pastor there at that time and he was my pastor then uh, he became a mentor and helped me pretty much get where I am today I would not be where I am Uh, the fact of that I love reading old dead guys and I I, you want to know where I got the, the term from it was from this guy Uh, And he, more than anything, just taught me how to trudge, how to, in the moments where faith is hard, in the moments when your faith is tested, in the moments where you don't understand what God is doing, yet you trust that he is good, you just keep walking. Uh, And he is the reason why I even use that word, trudge. Um, And so now he is a regional youth ministries uh, director and Uh, He helps to equip high school students all around Texas to learn how to disciple their friends and learn to reach their schools. And so he has a heart for the Lord and a heart for evangelism and a heart for the lost. And so uh, it is a pleasure. It is much pleasure that I want to introduce my friend Chance Abbott here today.
0: Well, good morning. It is so good to be here with you today. And uh, man, I'm I'm excited to get to be a part of anything that Pastor Kai is doing. I uh, was thinking about on my drive up here. I was thinking about that I got to watch him uh, develop into some. I was I kept thinking I was like, man. I said I got to watch Kai fall in love with uh, with getting a deeper grasp of theology. I got to watch. Kai fall in love with reading old dead guys. I was literally thinking that in my drive yesterday. I was like, I got to be a pro- part of that process. So for me to get to come and and, and see him pastoring his church is a moment that I uh, I hold dear and is a moment that I'm proud of. Anyway. Um, but I'm so I'm genuinely excited to be here with you guys today. Uh, I want to have a, a conversation with you. If I can just jump right in, uh, I want to have a conversation with you about being on mission and living on mission. And I want to I'm going to have a conversation with you today about one of the scariest words that comes out of the Bible, and uh, and that word is evangelism. I know, I know it's terrifying. Some I know that some of you may be ready to run out the door right now, but hear me out today. And uh, would you mind would you stand with me one time? I'm not sure what y'all's normal process is here, but if you would uh, be so kind just to stand with me this morning as just honor the reading of God's Word. I want to uh, challenge you with a portion of Scripture that challenges me, uh, Romans chapter 12, uh, and, uh, and I just want to unpack this just a little bit with you today if I can. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9, and I'm reading out the New Living Translation. It says this, it says, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. The challenge to this translation for th- that for these two f- opening sentences doesn't that sound like something written today? Like, don't just pretend to love others; really love them. It blows my mind that two thousand years ago, Paul had to have a similar conversation with the with Christians there in Rome. Like, hey guys, you got to stop just acting like you like people you got to really like them. you got to stop just acting like you love people. you got to really do something about that. Love, love is a decision we make. Love is, love is, is, is visible in the way that we, in the way that we uh, live our lives. And so don't just pretend to love others but really love them. He goes on. He says, hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with a genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. Father, I pray, Lord, through the rest of this service, I pray that you would speak to our hearts in a way that only you can. God, you see the individual circumstances of our lives. You see the influence of our lives. God, you see, uh, God, you see all of those things. I certainly don't. So I pray, Lord, that today that Your Word would speak, that Lord, that Your Spirit would would minister to our hearts and help us each individually, Lord, to draw closer to You. We thank You for who You are. In Your name, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. When I look at this passage of Scripture, I mean, we could spend a month here. I mean, I just there's whole series of uh, there's a whole series of messages found in this these simple few verses. You know, I look at this the, the, this closing line, keep on praying. We could have a whole conversation. We could have a whole prayer series, right? We could talk about prayer because prayer is such a necessity to our faith. I think there are so many times that as Christians, we're looking for a different answer uh, to some of our problems. We're like, well, what else should I do? But the thing that we've always got to come back to is, are you praying? Are you spending time with the Lord? And are you in God's Word? Are you hearing God from God in His Word? And so these two things of prayer and Bible reading sound like such a Sunday school answer. They sound like such a, well, yes, we know prayer and Bible reading, but what else? But, but it really is, these are the foundations of our faith. These are, the, these, these are the key disciplines for us as Christians that we are praying and, and reading and studying God's Word but this reminder here, keep on praying. Don't give up. Trudge, if you will. Keep on praying. Be patient in trouble. There are so many things that we could unpack in this passage of Scripture. I love the phrasing here, rejoice in our confident I love it because we as Christians have this hope that brings us joy, joy going so much deeper than happiness, because you know, there's so many things in the world that, that offer you versions of happiness, right? You get this, and you'll be happy, and it's true, but the problem with happiness is it doesn't linger, it doesn't stay, happiness is, is in and out. But the Bible says that we can have a, a joy that settles into us, a joy that is, is, we have there can be a joy there despite whether or not the circumstances around us make us happy. There's a joy there that is greater. And the Bible here says that we can have in this joy, we can rejoice, sharing this similar root where we can rejoice in our confident hope. Now, I love this passage of scripture here because because it's so important that you understand a couple of things. One is that that's one of the things that makes us as believers so different than those in the world that have not come to know Christ yet, is hope. They say it's the great need of the current generation is something to tether their lives to, something to to give them hope. Now, hope, simply put, just means something, it means to anticipate something good later. That's what hope is, to anticipate something good later and we as christians have a great hope that we can hold to but but you need to know that sometimes the word the way that the bible uses a word isn't the same way that we use the word see we tend to use the word uh, hope with our fingers crossed kind of moment right like i'm really hoping to avoid the weather i'm really hoping my team will win i'm i'm really man i'm really hoping that that she doesn't know i'm really hoping he doesn't find i hope they're not mad i'm really hoping for that and that's how we use this word hope. But you need to know that's not the way that the Bible uses the word hope. The biblical word for hope is a guarantee and a promise. The biblical word for hope is a sure thing. It means that when we as Christians, when we, when we hook up our hopes to Jesus, we have what the, the old uh, song would say, that we have a blessed assurance. Why do we have a blessed assurance? Because our hope with Jesus is not a fingers crossed moment. We're not just hoping, I'm hoping. But we have something different. In fact, you don't actually need the word confident here, but that's put in our translation for us. If you were to just read it in its actual, to put confident hope would be like saying hope hope because confidence is already directly connected into the biblical word for hope. But because of the way we use the word, Scripture goes out of its way to make sure that it's interpreted in a way that we can understand and process it. We need to see this word confident because for us, hope is such a a question mark thing. But here the Bible tells us that you can rejoice in a confident hope. You can take confidence in the hope that we have in Jesus. This is why the Bible says that we as believers mourn differently than people in the world. We do not mourn as those who have no hope. I was a pastor at a church for many years, and I can tell you there's a huge difference between um, a funeral service for somebody who had a pronounced faith and somebody who who had maybe some question marks. In fact, I would say that's one of the greatest things that you could ever leave behind for your family to comfort them in, in a time of trouble is that they would have no question about your faith because your relationship with Christ was so pronounced That they could take hope in the hope that you have. They could take hope in in the blessed assurance that you would attain. And so there's this this passage of scripture is just so packed with, with man, work hard and never be lazy and serve the Lord enthusiastically. And over and over in this passage, I'm challenged. But I keep returning back to this don't just pretend to love others, but to really love them. To really love them. And I think that if we were to if we were to examine our lives, I think that we would come to a place we would, that we as believers would say that Jesus is the greatest thing that's ever happened to us. Now, maybe we don't feel like that every day all the time because we get distracted by our lives. We get distracted by busyness. We get distracted by, by, by the uh, the thistles and thorns of the world, right? We get distracted by all the stuff we've got to deal with in life. And so sometimes we forget that Jesus is the greatest thing that's ever happened to us. But in a moment of pause, and a moment of reflection and a moment of worship, we come back to the foundational truth that Jesus is the greatest thing to ever happen to us. And if Jesus is the greatest thing to ever happen to us, then I would present the premise that the most loving thing that we could ever do is point others back to him. The most loving thing that God could ever do, the most loving thing that a perfect God could ever do is share himself. That is the most loving thing that he could ever do is share himself because he is so good, because his glory is so great that the most loving thing he can do is share himself with us. That God does not need us to worship him. He does not need, God is not looking for validation in who he is. He's fully aware of who he is and in the knowledge of who he is, he loved us so greatly that he would let us experience who he is. And as we as Christians are going to love the Lord as Jesus said with all of our hearts J- Jesus as he summarizes the the law from the Old Testament to love the Lord with all of your heart and likewise to love others how do these what does this love look like is it this great love that we have this great emotion that we possess or could it be something greater and I would present to you the idea that the most loving thing that you could do is like Christ The most loving thing he could do is share himself. The most loving thing that you could do is not to share yourself. That would be turning the attention the wrong direction. But the most loving thing that you could do is also sharing him. To share him. To not just pretend to love others, but really love them. So what I believe is that we are called to live life on mission. And I believe that we're called to this terrifying word of evangelism. And I, and, I, I, and I will, I will uh, preface the conversation today that, I don't, think that we, I don't think that we skip out on evangelism as Christians today because I don't think that we do it because we hate people. I think we're busy. I think we're distracted. I think we got a lot of things going on in life. But if we're honest, I, I, I think that, that it's so easy for us to skip the spiritual discipline of evangelism. And that's what it is. You have no idea how much you need to evangelize others for you. I believe that it's one of the missing elements of discipleship in our churches today. Now, as we, you know, I hear your pastor talk about that we are, we are disciples to be making disciples, right? Disciples making disciples. And part of that is this conversation of evangelism gets all tied into that. It's, man, the Bible says that we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. You have no idea how much you need to share your faith with others that you might remind yourself of your faith. Evangelism forces you to bring clarity to your faith, to what you believe. You know, one of the things that I've pressed upon many young people before is to to understand what do you believe and why, because if you don't understand the why to the what, then ultimately uh, when your what you believe is pressed up against, against the tensions of culture, it'll shatter. If you don't understand why it is you believe what you believe, then when that belief faces tension from culture, it will break. So what do you believe and why? And I think that having conversations about our faith, not having conversations about our church events, not having conversations about Christian things or or Christian celebrities, if you will, or anything like that, but actually having conversations about our faith, having conversations about God, I think that these things develop They're a part of that discipleship process within us, and they bring so much clarity. It's like when you read something that you weren't sure how to put it into words, but when you read somebody else's words about it, you went this. This is what I was trying to say. It takes a thought from being a thought and actualizes it into something that has clarity, that has substance, if you will. This conversation of evangelism. I believe that we're called to be on mission, that we're called to be missional our thinking, that we're that we have to be intentional about building relationships with and telling others about Jesus. I believe that we have to prioritize this evangelism idea that it won't happen just by happenstance often. But it's something that requires a, you know, we do we don't drift towards Jesus in any area of our lives. You know, you don't you don't just you don't just naturally have a bent to move towards Christ. It's the opposite because of the sinful nature within us. We have a, we naturally drift further from him. We naturally drift deeper into our own selfishness into our own the own, our own self-centered lives. That's how we we drift that direction. But but when we but following Christ, this is an active decision in our lives. It's not a decision we once made and we get to linger on, but this is a it's a it's a constant Following of our lives is an active decision in our life. Is it active? It's, uh, I've heard your, your pastor talk to you about uh, this process of sanctification, and that's what we are. We are saints. We are in process of being sanctified. There's Sanctification has happened in our past in our justification as we accepted the Lord, but it is a process that we are in now, and one day one day will be completed in our future. Sanctification covers all three, past, present, and future, and that's a beautiful thing that we definitely don't have time to get into this morning. But I just want to... Briefly talk to you about this idea of evangelism, if I could, this morning. You know the, the 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 Greek root for this word. This word's really only used three times in Scripture, and not and none of those three really give us a whole lot of information go off of. To be honest with you, we see a uh, there's a, a passage in Ephesians uh, that it says that that God gave some to be pastors, teachers, apostles, prophets, uh, and evangelist is in there. So we see the word used there. We see it used in the book of Acts when it refers to Philip. It gives a, it's used as a title, you know, for the uh, Philip the evangelist. And then we see the word used again uh, in uh, one of Paul's letters to Timothy. He tells Timothy, he says, to do the work of an evangelist. But none of them really tell us what the term itself means. None of them really give us a whole lot of information on what is what does the work of an evangelist actually look like. But if you were to if you were to look, the word itself for evangelism simply means, or evangelist, would simply mean good messenger. That's the evangelist, good messenger. Now, I grew up going to church, and the evangelist was the guy that travels and speaks. That was the evangelist. He would have big events that were predominantly focused on getting people saved, and he was, he was always a great speaker, and he, always did it, I mean, he, was, a, he was the evangelist. So I've never really felt like, man, I, I definitely don't fit the bill on that because I've always felt like more of a discipleship-minded person. I've always felt like, you know, I'm not, I'm not great at the clever story that's going to draw an emotional response and get people to flood the altars. I've never been good at that, but, but I can unpack some Scripture with you and, and throw out some things that might challenge you for the day. I've been more of a discipleship guy. So I wrestled with this idea of of this new season of my life. My my ministry is focused on helping students, helping high school and junior high students to to have the confidence to share their faith, to have conversations about faith. And in doing so, it's put me traveling, rather than being at one church all the time, I find myself going from church to church to church and having conversations about, about sharing our faith, talking about our faith. And one day it hit me, I was like, Have I become an evangelist? This is not what I'm good at. I'm not good at this. So I began to study and and to dive a little bit further into it. One of the things that I discovered is really the most simple, the simplistic terms of evangelism I could offer you is evangelism is discipleship on the front end of of salvation. Evangelism is just, it shares so many of the same practices and disciplines of, of discipleship it's just happening it's just happening before someone's chosen to accept christ evangelism is is like the front end side of discipleship they share so many of the same disciplines and ideas they're just used differently i look at uh, 1 corinthians chapter 3 verse 6 it says i planted the seeds as paul writing the seeds in your hearts and apollos watered it but it was god who made it grow it is not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seed grow. The one who plants and the one who waters work together with the same purpose. And both will be rewarded for their own hard work. For we are both God's workers, and you are God's field, and you are God's building. And as I look into this scripture, I, I see the beauty that we are man, we're workers and the field that we get to be, we are both the recipients and the contributors of ministry. What a great privilege it is that we get to be a part of the kingdom. You know, the in our world, people want to live lives that matter. People are looking for purpose in their life. But what's incredible is you can have great, great, great achievements in the world without Christ at the center. You can have great achievements that may be well known for a while, but eventually, over time, the, the, that name will disappear from history. O- over time, the, the people that were great and significant a few hundred years ago, many of us today, we don't know their names. People who were envied, people who uh, others coveted after their lives and their lifestyles and their resources and their talents. People coveted after what they had, and today none of us know who they are. Yet with Christ, when you add Christ into the equation, suddenly a cup of coffee and conversation can have an eternal impact. I think about my own story of faith. Beginning with with 1970, this sweet old lady knocks on my grandparents' door and invites them to church. And in doing so, they went one Sunday, and my dad went with them. who was a 16-year-old teenager at the time, and, and uh, they go to church for one Sunday, and then they all go home, and, and none of them go back except for my dad, and my dad noticed when he was there that one Sunday that there were three teenage girls in the church, and he was the only teenage boy there that day, so my dad was like, I'm going to shoot my shot. My dad went to church for the wrong reasons, I hear people sometimes say that. Well, they come to youth, but they do it for the wrong. Who cares? They're here, and that's okay. They're here. You never know all that seed that's getting scattered, Apollos and Paul. Some are scattering seed and some are watering. You never know which one's going to take. You just never know, and that's not our job. Our job, this took me a long time in ministry to learn. I'm going to give it to you in one quick sentence, that I am not responsible for how people respond to the gospel. Whew, that took me a while. I'm not responsible, but I am responsible, and it is a privilege that I have to get to be. Not only am I a part of the field, not only am I a part, do I get to, to, re- to be a, a recipient of the kingdom, but I also have both the privilege and responsibility of casting seed and being a contributor to, to its purpose. And I think about my dad coming to faith. Because some sweet old lady who I don't know, one day in heaven, I can't wait to meet her. Let her know that that simple act of knocking on a door was the seed, was scattering seed in a way that my dad would end up getting radically saved, feeling called to ministry, pastoring in a church for many, many years, raising me to know the Lord. Now, I've been in ministry for nearly 20 years, believe it or not, and uh, and I'm raising my children to follow Jesus and know the Lord. And I look at that and I go, wow, three generations of my family's faith are tied back to some sweet old lady knocking on a door and inviting somebody else to church. Loving people, really loving them. Really loving people, living life on mission, living life on mission. All of us as believers should be involved in this great commission of Jesus. Not out of deep obligation, even though I do believe that it is, that it is Jesus this was His command to his disciples to do, but if we do it through deep obligation, that's like giving financially because we're supposed to. And I think it robs, when your heart's not in it, it robs the beauty of it. We get to be a part of this. And you're not responsible to make sure somebody else gets saved, but how cool is it that you get to be a part of the process? How cool is it that, what a privilege that we get to be a part of the kingdom, scattering seed. What privilege that we get to be a part of somebody else's eternal impact. I love the way the kingdom works because my life is tethered to this sweet old lady whose name I don't know. And anything that I'm able to do for the kingdom, anything that I'm able to do for the cause of Christ, all of it is being you know, attributed back into her account, so to speak. Right? She's connected to all of it. And whoever reached her is connected to all of it. And I love the kingdom. I love that the, I love that how, man, I think if you were to really sit down, it's impossible to do. Maybe one day we'll see it in heaven, but it took thousands of people. I would bet it took thousands of people working together for whatever moment it was that you came into the faith. Thousands of people who had translated Bibles, had lived that life, had shared their faith, had led others to Jesus' evangelism. Good messengers. And it's. There, there, are, there are so many people that are attributed and connected to, to the moment that we get saved. And, and I believe that it's our, it is our obligation, but greater than that, it is our privilege to get to continue that work in the lives of others. I don't want to keep you for too long here today, but I want to draw your attention to this great commission that you're probably all very familiar with out of Matthew chapter 28. Starting in verse 18, it says, Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. To live life on mission. I think that how you view these verses has a big impact on how, you're intera- how you will interact with the culture around you. If I could be so bold to tell you this, I think oftentimes our idea of living on mission is being active at church, or maybe giving financially to ministry, or if we are diehards, we might even invite someone to church. And none of these things are bad things. In fact, these are good things that we want you to do. I'm sure pastor wants you to do this, that it's incredibly important both to the local church and to your process of discipleship. I think that there are too many Christians out there that are disconnected from the local body. And ultimately, I find through, through conversations with them, I find many of them are, are, are drowning, they're wallowing in, a, in some form of offense, many of them are, are inevitably drowning in bad theology. And, and a lot of them are, are in some sort of self absorbed Like it's a self-absorption that gets camouflaged in like an altruistic idealism. It should be a high priority to be a part of a church. To be a faithful part of a church in presence and finance and commitment. In fact, I would present to you a, a very simple challenge of I, it's just a very simple one-two-three challenge. Take one person over the next two weeks and invite them to service three times. It's such an easy thing to do. Take one person over two weeks and invite them three times. Three lets them three times in two weeks lets them know that you really do want them to attend. Four is a little bit annoying. Don't do four. It's a little too much. But three, take one person, because so many times we talk about, well, invite people, invite people, invite people, and it's like choice overload, like sitting down at a restaurant that has too many things on the menu. Invite someone. What does that mean? There's so many people in my life. Where do I begin? Where do I begin? Where do I, where do I begin? I would challenge you, pick a person to focus on. A person over the next two weeks, invite them three times. But being missional is different than being attractional. You see, being attractional reaches the lost by bringing them in. And it's not wrong. Again, we want this. But it is not synonymous with the challenge of Jesus to go and make disciples. So being missional is a shift in the way that we think about church. It means that we must engage the world by going out rather than just reaching out to pull in. Missions isn't just a thing we do at church. Every follower should be trying to carry the mission of God into every sphere of life. Essentially, we're all missionaries sent into the world. I've started processing this idea of loving others like missions. I've been on missions trips around the world. I love missions. I've grown up in churches that have emphasized missions sending people across the world to do a work for the Lord. I've grown up in churches with this emphasis my whole life. I've been on many, many missions trips. And after doing so, I, you know, I, I look at the, what I would call the success of these trips, right? Partnering with missionaries and doing what, a great work. And I think that we do. I think that it's great to go into these places and to do these things that help champion the cause of this missionary and increase their influence in their community to help them be more effective in reaching others And and, in their context, and I think it's a good thing. But I think that so many times, uh, missions became something somewhere else. Missions became something we do elsewhere. Missions became something on the other side of the world. Missions became something for poor people. Missions became something else. And, And I believe that we are called to be on mission in our lives today. And we are to love others like missions. So what's the difference between the effect that we have when we go on a trip to the other side of the world and the, and the way that we live our daily lives? Is it that we care less here? I don't think that that's true. I think we have more distractions here. We're busier here. But what's the great difference? That, and What I've come back to is there's a deep, deep intentionality when you go to the other side of the world to do missions. Like I would never show up in a country like Haiti with a group of people and they say, what are we going to do? And I'd be like, well, we're just going to figure it out. Not sure yet, right? We spend months preparing. We spend months figuring out how much it's going to cost, can making the right connections, scheduling it all out. We spend months with an intentionality making a plan because why? Because we make plans when something is important. We make plans when something's important. And too many times in our church world, the the work of the ministry has been regula- regulated to the those who work in the church. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the, Lord, that the Lord gave us these leaders in the church like pastors to help equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We are all called to do our part in this great commission, but it's more than just sending missionaries elsewhere. It's more than just sending missionaries elsewhere. In fact, if you were to look at this passage of Scripture, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth, therefore go will make disciples of all nations. There's one imperative verb in here. There's one imperative verb in this sentence in this Great Commission. And the imperative verb, that's the, that's the thing that tells you what you're supposed to go do. That's the, it's, it is the key. Whichever word is the imperative verb, that's the word that's telling you what to do. And then there are other words around it. Some of you, this grammatical lesson is gonna be awesome for others. You're just gonna to have to tread your way through it. You got this, okay? There's the imperative verb, and it is surrounded by participles. Participles are the, they're telling you what to do to accomplish the bigger what to do. The imperative is the objective. The imperative verb, this is what you're supposed to do, and these participles that surround it are how you're supposed to go about doing this other thing. And if you were to look at this passage of Scripture, there is one imperative, and there are three participles. Now, typically, in our Language in the English language, our participles tend to be the words that end in ing. So, if for instance, if I were to tell you to go and uh, the imperative is to go detail the car, that's the imperative go detail the car by waxing the exterior, uh, shining the, uh, the wheels, and shampooing the seats. Okay, so the imperative is detail the car. It's an imperative followed by a noun. Detail the car. The participles are in the waxing, shining, and shampooing, right? The I-N-G words create the participles. They're how to do what I've just told you to do. Is everybody tracking with me so far? Everybody okay? All right, so in this passage of Scripture, in this Great Commission, there is one imperative and I'll be honest with you and I'm not speaking against anybody else that's preached these passages but for the longest time my whole life I thought the imperative was go. Therefore go. And that seemed like the imperative to me. Right? That's that's telling you what to do. Go. Go. And this is I think how missions gets all tied up, the great commission gets all tied up in the missions because in missions we're sending somebody somewhere else. They're going. So then the great commission becomes the great statement for missions and, and it's, okay, yeah, you guys go elsewhere and do these things. And we're missing out on so much. The, great, the imperative in this passage isn't go. That's not the task. The task is actually making disciples. But it looks like in our language, that looks like a participle, making disciples. It looks like a participle with a noun, but it's not. It is uh, disciple is the imperative. If you'd actually look at the Greek, disciple is the imperative without the noun. Disciple without the noun is the imperable or is the imperative, and the participles are going, baptizing, and teaching without the noun. This is important because this is a, uh, the Greek word here is a verbal command, disciple. Disciple is the command, not the noun that follows the command. I hope you're tracking with me. In our language, we say making disciples. But in the Greek, the word there is just disciple because you can't, you can't actually make a disciple like you build a house or like you grill a steak. You can't actually make a disciple like that. It's it's uh, it's not a verb with a noun. It just simply says disciple, which is more like saying run or jump. That's what the word, the, the word itself, because you can't really make a disciple. You can only disciple. You can't, because making a disciple, it's it's uh, it's discipleship is a process. It's not a a destination. Okay, it's not a uh, it, it's not the end result. It is the ongoing process. It's not a product you end up with. So the grammar here is not telling us to make an object. There's only one single imperative verb, only a command only an action, only something to do, and it is disciple. And we do that by going. In fact, by going is uh, another phrase that we get lost in because going always seems like somewhere else. If you were to dive into the language here, you would find that it, going means really more so in your going. In your going, disciple. Disciple. As you go, disciple. Engage in the process. The Great Commission is less of a verbal command to go and more a command to disciple in what you are already, and where you are already going, and what you are already doing, that we disciple in the everyday things. So my challenge for you this morning is I bring our Sermon to a close is very simply. When I look at this previous passage in Romans, don't just pretend to love others, but really love them. If the greatest act of love that the Father could ever commit is sharing himself and I being made in the image of Christ, as a Christian, my ultimate goal is to look more and more and identify more and more with Christ, And likewise, the greatest act of love that I could ever do is also pointing back to the Father, pointing back to God. And I'm not responsible for how people respond to the good news. I'm not responsible for how you respond to the gospel. But I get the privilege of being a part of sowing seed. I get the privilege of being a part of watering seed. And I get to do it not just when I plan to go to the other side of the world, but I get to do it in my going. As I go in what I'm already doing in life. So my challenge to you today, my point to reflect on is simply this. Who in your life do you love that needs a confident hope? Who do you love that needs a confident hope? And do you love them enough that you would make a plan to intentionally put seed into their lives? Do you love them enough that you wouldn't just wait for the day that they finally ask you about the Lord? Do you love them enough that you would start creating a, a, a list of, of questions in your phone to randomly ask them just to get them thinking? Do you love them enough that you would make a plan on when and where and how to share the gospel? them? Do you love them enough that you're praying for that moment? That's where you start. Sharing our faith with others, we get lost in the bigness of it. I used to hear, win the world. Can't win the world, the world's too big. Well, win your world. I can't win my world, my world's too big. I mean, you take all the people that, I mean, goodness, just on Facebook alone, I have 1,500 friends. Recently, I thumbed through the list, and I was like, there's so many people here, I don't know who they are. My world's too big. So, how do I love others and really love them? I <laughs> I've started calling it the pursuit of a soul. I've got some family members of mine that need the love of Jesus in their lives. I've simply put notes in my phone, reminders to go off every few days, to send them a text, to send them a call. Why? Because I've got a strategy. I've a plan. Because I'm not just out there throwing seed just hoping but I'm trying to cast seed in the right spots at the right place at the right time. Right? I love them enough that I'm intentionally, I'm intentionally going after them that they may know Jesus. And I'm not responsible for how they respond to him. But I am commanded, more than that, what great privilege that it is that I could be a part of their eternity. What great privilege it is that there could be a cousin of mine in heaven one day, because I was willing I was willing to put a note in my phone to remind me to reach out to them. I've got a plan and a strategy. Who do, you know, who do you love in your life enough that you would make the plan to reach them with the gospel of Jesus, that they too may have a confident hope? And that's the point that I'd like us to spend a few moments reflecting on today.
1: Thanks for listening to today's sermon. We hope this helps you on your journey to glorify God by enjoying Him and making disciples who make disciples.